Good evening, everybody. You ready to begin? Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, after reviewing what we did last time, and looking more carefully at my plan, I realized that before I get into the content of the creed, and, and also looking at some of the questions that you all wrote for me, which I just realized I forgot my notepads to pass around again. If you don't mind, would you run and grab? They're on, the, they're on my desk. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Um, what I want to do tonight is talk about, uh, talk about how we know any of what we know about God. Um, how Basically, what is revelation? Um, the, the content we're going to talk about comes before we get into the creed in the catechism, and it um, basically can be found in Dei Verbum from the Second Vatican Council, and, uh, and just as Dei Verbum did, it draws on Dei Filius, the First Vatican Council's declaration on divine revelation. I think, I think what we need to understand about our faith is that it is a deeply historical faith. It is, somebody asked me, actually just last night, uh, a, a Lutheran who takes his faith very, very seriously, who tries to evangelize on a regular basis, asked me how I would begin if someone who had no Christian background were to ask me about the church, about Catholicism. And as you might imagine, I don't have that experience that often. It's happened a few times, but most of the time, the people who come to me already know people like you who've given them at least an introduction uh, to our faith. I don't, I don't work outside the church. <laughs> um, and so the people I, I meet are usually already seeking something that the church has. They already know something. But if I were to, if I were to encounter someone, and when I have encountered the people who want to understand something about the faith, something about our faith, but who have no background at all, I'll point to history. Jesus Christ is the most well-documented person in all of history. Certainly, certainly of his time period. We have more information about him than anyone else from that era. Now, the largest amount of that material is in the Gospels and in the epistles that we have in sacred scripture, but also in the writings of the early Christians 
we know a whole lot about the man, Jesus Christ. We also know a lot about the history of, of ancient Judaism. And the reality is, Judaism is a historical fact. We, we might, many might, be inclined to think of Christianity and Judaism as just religion, as something that's tacked on to ordinary life. But that's historically not accurate. They're part of the fabric of, of the lives of the ancient Israelites and, and of the early Christians. They were, ba they were acting based on the experiences of their lives. Abraham did not just decide out of the blue to go move hundreds of miles and start his own family on his own. He was responding to God's invitation. King David was a real king. The Israelites in slavery in Egypt were really enslaved. The Babylonian exile is a real event. We can find archaeological evidence for it. So our faith is a deeply historical faith. If you would like to read more about that subject, I would recommend uh, Scott Hahn's A Father Who Keeps His Promises. Uh, it's not principally his history, but what, it, what, this, what his book does is it reveals that Judeo, the Judeo-Christian tradition is rooted in the history of God's reaching out to humanity. And there is a consistency in the way God reaches out to us from the beginning of time with Adam and Eve down to today God is unfolding his, is revealing his merciful love. That's the message that um, Scott Hahn explains in A Father Who Keeps His Promises. Part of the reason why I love to point to the historical fact of our faith is that it helps to make clear that our faith is truly unified. How many books are there in the Bible? 73. <clears throat> and those 73 books do not write a single narrative. They're very distinct, distinct in form, in structure. The difference between the Psalms and the, the, books, the book of wisdom and the book of Genesis or Exodus, is radical. I mean, they wouldn't even fall in the same genre. And yet we treat them all in the same book, the Bible. So I think it's very important that we make an effort to make clear that our faith is a unified whole. And I think looking at the history of how it unfolded over time helps to do that. So, in the Catechism... Under the revelation of God, we start with what I've just been telling you. God has a plan of, his, of unfolding his love for us. The next point is that there, are, there have been stages in his self-revelation. In the book of Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve 
walked with God. We're, we should believe that they had a kind of communication with God that we're unfamiliar with, that is not like our communication with God. They walked with him, they knew him, they were friends with him. Abraham receives this revelation, this election, this call, you will be the father of many nations. And there are multiple calls, multiple covenants, multiple exchanges of self, relationship, personal relationships established by God throughout the Old Testament. The Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam and Eve, the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah after the great flood and the destruction of all people, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the, uh, which was renewed with his sons Isaac and Jacob, the, the Mosaic covenant wherein we receive the Ten Commandments, the Davidic covenant where God makes all these promises to David and his kingdom. So these, these covenants are stacking and stacking and stacking. They're building. And what God is promising his chosen people is growing and growing. He's promising more and more. But always pointing toward a future fulfillment in the Old Testament. This is the first stage of Revelation preparing the way for the fullness of God's revelation, which is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. At, at Mass, when we read from the Old Testament, we say, the reader says, the word of the Lord. Well, growing up, I didn't give that much thought. It was kind of automatic. Thanks be to God. <laughs> But that in itself is a statement of our faith. We're making the statement when we respond, thanks be to God, to that, the word of the Lord. We're making the statement that what we've just received is God's self-revelation. His word. He himself is speaking to us, making himself known to us. And then in the New Testament which we believe is a, a, a fuller manifestation of God's word, of God's self. In the gospel, when we respond, when, when the gospel finishes and the priest says the gospel of the Lord, we, we say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a diminishment, but an intensification of that statement of faith. That Jesus Christ is himself the word, the word made flesh. And so, in the New Testament, God has completed his self-revelation. He has made himself fully known to us. Now, this belief that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's self-revelation gives us a very important category or categorical distinction that we can make. And that is the difference between public revelation and private revelation. And I want to spend a minute on this because it's very, this, this distinction plays a very important role in our lives personally, in our own spiritual lives. Let me explain. 
The difference between public revelation and private revelation is that public revelation is what God has revealed to him of himself to the whole world. How he has made himself known and definitively accessible to the whole world. Public, public revelation consists in scripture and tradition, and I'll get into those two more in just a minute. But public, public revelation is certain. It is reliable. We can sink our teeth into it. It is on the basis of public revelation. It is as an expression of public revelation that the church defines doctrine. Dogma is always an expression of what God has publicly revealed to the whole world. Now, private revelation. Private revelation is what God has revealed of himself to individuals interiorly or some, sometimes through apparitions, through miraculous gifts of knowledge and understanding. No one, not even the person who receives private revelation, is bound to adhere to it. All Christians, even Protestants, hold themselves to be bound to what Jesus Christ has revealed of himself publicly. Now, Protestants and Catholics differ on what falls under public revelation and what doesn't, and I'll get into that in just a moment. But we must adhere to what has been publicly revealed. So let me give an example of what we must believe and what we need not actually believe. Although some of the examples I'm going to give, I would strongly encourage you to believe. We must believe that Jesus is God. It's contained in scripture. All of the fathers of the church are absolutely clear on this. We must believe that Jesus Christ is human. Those are part of public revelation. Public revelation formally ended with the death of the last apostle. Because they were the ones who walked with Christ, who lived with Christ, and who received the Holy Spirit to definitively bring the church to the world. Public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. And that Jesus Christ is both God and man is part of public revelation. Private revelation includes a whole array of things. Part of what falls under private revelation would be something like Our Lady of Fatima. We are not, as Catholics, obliged to believe that Our Lady appeared at Fatima. Now, you're a fool if you don't. Forty... 70,000 70, people gave public testimony that they saw the miracle of the sun. But that's not based on the dogmatic teaching of the church that we are foolish not to believe it, but on the credible testimony of thousands and thousands of people who witnessed the miracle of the sun. 
We are not in conscience obliged on pain of sin to believe that Our Lady appeared at Fatima or Guadalupe or any other Marian apparition for that matter. However, the church has, with many of these apparitions, made a judgment that the content of what was revealed in these apparitions is consistent with the faith and therefore and, and, and encourages faith and, and supports the faith and therefore gives approval to these apparitions. But even that approval is still a matter of private revelation. We are not obliged in conscience to believe it. We are obliged to believe that Jesus Christ is both God and man. We must believe that. But we are not obliged to believe that Mary appeared at Fatima or that she gave the rosary to St. Dominic or all, everything in that, like that. The difficulty, the reason that this distinction is so important for our practical lives of faith is that private revelation or what appears to be private revelation might not be. The devil can give us thoughts. The devil can appear as an angel of light. The devil can do lots of things that look like God is acting. And so we need to be careful when our spiritual lives are led by this kind of private revelation. Our spiritual lives ought to be led, ought to be found, grounded in public, public revelation. Have I confused anybody? You with me? Any questions before I move on? Okay. So now, to delve more deeply into the content of public revelation and how we know public revelation. How, how do we know what we know about God? Well, we have the Bible. Where did that come from? The Bible was composed over roughly one and a half millennia, over roughly 1,500 years. And it was composed in stages. Like I said, there are 73 books in the Bible. And with the exception of just a couple, they all have different authors. There are a few that have, there are a few groups that have the same author, or at least small t tradition, which is another distinction I'll get to in a minute. But small t tradition holds that they're the same author. But for the most part, the different books of the Bible were written by different authors at different times. And furthermore, much of those books, most of those books, pretty much, I think, with the exception of the New Testament epistles, were not initially composed in written form, but were written, or initially composed in oral form. They were part of oral tradition. Now, I want to dispel I want to dispel a mistake 
that many modern historians make when considering oral tradition. I don't know about you, but when I was in elementary school and the subject of oral tradition came up, the teacher had us play the telephone game. Have you played the telephone game before? This is not at all like oral tradition. Not at all. That is a complete misrepresentation of what oral tradition actually is. And the difference is this. Whenever you play the telephone game, your life doesn't depend on it. When you play the telephone game, your whole social and communal life does not depend on it. When you play the telephone game, your eternal soul does not depend on it. If someone came to you and said, I'm going to teach you something, and your eternal life will depend on it, and the eternal life of all of your descendants will depend on it, and if they get it wrong, it'll be on you. Do you think you'd pay close attention? Do you think you'd find a way to remember it? Do you think you'd find a way to make sure that your children knew it correctly and understood it and were prepared to pass it on to their children? I know I would. Part of the reason that, or part of the historical evidence that we have that oral tradition is extremely reliable comes from Celtic history. Do you know where the Celts, the, the tribe of the Celts originated? India. And the reason, or somewhere in that region roughly, the reason that we know this is because in the late Middle Ages, so figure 14th to 16th century, somewhere in that time frame, they didn't have a written law. And so someone made the effort to write down all the laws that they had. One of the laws that they had that was of particular interest to historians was how to resolve disputes when your elephant destroys someone else's yard. How many elephants are there in Ireland? Right? Well, because that was so important to their culture, it was passed down in the oral tradition. Oral tradition is extremely reliable. This is what I'm trying to make clear to you. After some time, the books that we have in the Bible were written down from the oral tradition. In addition to this, we didn't merely, and this is, why, or, this is part of why oral tradition is so important, we didn't merely have a set of books that was given to us. We had a lived faith. We had a community that was built around God's self-revelation. And this, this is expressed 
by our creeds, by our tradition, as apostolic succession. In the creed, we say one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The meaning of this is that our faith is inherited directly from the apostles. Our bishop, Archbishop Listecki, can trace his episcopal lineage. He can go back. This bishop ordained him, and he was ordained by, and he was ordained by, ultimately back to the apostles. Our faith is, is part of a living community. Actually, a, a, I think a fruitful exercise in prayer can be to consider the fact that your faith was formed in you by another person whose faith was received from another person. Your faith can be traced all the way back to the apostles. Ultimately, this past weekend, I went to a party that we Catholics don't celebrate, but Serbian Orthodox do. They have a beautiful tradition in the Serbian Orthodox Church of celebrating what they call Slava, the day on which their family, the first member of their family, was baptized. So they, they can go back and look at their lineage and, and identify when their first ancestor, first direct ancestor, became a Christian. I think it's a beautiful tradition and I think it can be a really beautiful practice in prayer to consider that even if we don't know that person or that time or that date for ourselves, all of us are descendants of converts who were brought into the faith through the apostles or their successors. Now, I've, been, I've spent a lot of time talking about the Bible because the Bible's really important. But I'd like to make it, I'd like to spend this, the next few minutes talking about the relationship between what we call sacred tradition and sacred scripture. Tradition and scripture. Tradition is what I've just been talking about. This lived community, living community of faith. The people who have received the faith from Jesus Christ, ultimately, through the apostles. At the heart of the relationship between sacred scripture and tradition is a profound unity. Really, I think if we, if we, need, to, if we need to think Venn diagram, we really have one source ultimately, that leads us back to Christ, that gives us access to Christ. And that source is tradition. The living word passed on from generation to generation. Within the big category of tradition is the most important subcategory, which is sacred scripture. So, let me, be, let me rephrase that another way. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture are never in competition with one another. Sacred scripture is a, an, a, a unique 
category within our tradition. It's a, it's a unique, uniquely um, elevated, honored, protected means by which God has communicated himself to us. When we talk about the faith, the Catholic faith, the Christian faith, ultimately what we are talking about is tradition. The way that we know tradition is through scripture, through the sacramental life of the church, the way that the church practices the faith, through the law of the church, through canon law, and through the teaching of the bishops and fathers and doctors and saints of the church. Now that becomes a little tricky when we recognize that there are lots of things that the church does that Christ didn't do, right? The Pope carries a crucifix. Bishops carry a crozier. Did Jesus? No. Is carrying a crozier necessary for salvation? No, it's not. Is it part of our heritage? Absolutely, yes it is. There's a distinction to be made between dogmatic tradition, the tradition that gives us direct access to Christ, the tradition that contains within it the content of our faith, what I want to call big T tradition, to which we must be faithful, and traditions, little t tradition, disciplines or practices that are not essential to the faith, but that have, over time, been deeply enmeshed with the faith. So, what vesture a priest wears? It's a little tea tradition. It's a really important little tea tradition because it goes all the way back to the beginning. It's not a recent addition. But it's not absolutely essential. I'll give you a, a slightly controversial one. Clerical celibacy is a little tea tradition. Now, I would say that that's an even more important little tea tradition than what vestments a priest wears because there's actually support for it in Scripture. But in Scripture, it's not absolute. There are priests and deacons who've been married. Most of the apostles were married. Peter, we know for sure, was married because Jesus cured his mother-in-law. You don't have a mother-in-law without a wife. So that's a little t tradition. It's an important tradition. It helps to more fully express the theological reality, the big t tradition of what the priesthood is. But celibacy is not the important thing. The priestly identification with Christ, who was totally others-focused, others who was totally giving himself to the whole world, that's the essential truth that the little tradition is trying to protect and support. Does that make sense, that distinction? Okay, now, 
Now I'm going to get into some matters where Catholicism is distinguished from Protestantism, from Orthodoxy, from all the other forms of Christianity. And that is the magisterium. One might ask, how do we know, for example, on the question of priestly celibacy, how do we know whether that's a big T or little t tradition? There's evidence for it in Scripture, but there are lots of priests who've been married. Even today, there are priests who are married. So how do we know? The magisterium. The magisterium is not a source of revelation. It's not a source of how we know God. Tradition is the source. That lived faith passed down one generation to the next. But the magisterium is the servant of revelation. The servant of the tradition that safeguards what we believe. That prevents us from going too far afield as we try to understand and unpack what is contained in Scripture, what is contained in the living tradition of our faith. Remember, I said a couple weeks ago that the church defines dogma negatively. You remember I said that? Well, this is, this is why the church defines dogma negatively. Because the magisterium is not a source of knowing God, but rather a safeguard. The magisterium, which is defined as the bishops of the world in union with the Pope, and that in union with the Pope is really important. I got that wrong on a high school test <laughs> because I said it's the bishops of the world. No, it's not the bishops on their own. You could have all the bishops, except the Pope, say something. All, literally all of them. But if it is not acknowledged, if the Pope does not give his agreement, it's not a magisterial, it's not a binding, universally definitive magisterial teaching. It is, all the, it is the bishops of the world in union with the Pope. And that's really important as, you, as we look at the history of the church because there have been times when the majority of bishops were heretics. There was a time when the majority of bishops in the world believed that Jesus Christ was not God, but was only a man. But the Pope never gave his assent to that. So the magisterium safeguards the content of the tradition by excluding, by defining against errors. That's why the church teaches negatively. The magisterium teaches negatively by saying we may not believe that Jesus Christ was not God. That, that's excluded. The magisterium is the servant of the tradition who, who keeps us in a correct understanding of what God has given us in his public revelation. Okay? If what I'm saying is true, and it is, about scripture and tradition, scripture has a unique place in our life because it is the inspired word of God, the inerrant word of God. And so it has a unique place within our prayer. 
but our doctrines are an expression of our tradition as well. And our doctrines are also protected from error. Unlike scripture, they are not the inerrant word of God, but they are part of public revelation. And so the doctrine that we have received is also good food for prayer. One of the questions that I was given after last class was, how do we, how do we actually use this? Two people asked this. How do, we, how do we use this both for prayer and for study? So, a quick aside. I would encourage you to just read from cover to cover, slowly, little by little. It's laid out for that purpose. But if you're looking at a specific topic, the index is really useful. But the index doesn't have page numbers. It has paragraph numbers. And, and these are listed on each paragraph. And, and so you'll find great information in those paragraphs. Many of those paragraphs are excellent, excellent sources of material for prayer. Because the definitive teaching of the church is one of the means by which we get access to Jesus Christ, to the word of God. So now a little bit more about Scripture itself. Scripture and tradition can both be speaking of, speak, spoken of, speaking of, can both be spoken of as norms of revelation. They 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 give us the boundaries, the norms of what what we can believe. Scripture is the unnormed norm meaning that we don't need to look to tradition to understand whether or not what Scripture says is true. What Scripture says is true. But there are lots of fathers of the church who've said lots of erroneous things. Some of the fathers of the church, a few, but some of the fathers of the church said that Mary was not immaculately conceived. The majority said she was, but a few said she wasn't. We need to look to the magisterium and to the larger tradition to evaluate each of those individual fathers of the church, those early Christians who are looked to as authorities, but most of them made some mistakes. We don't need to make that same evaluation with Scripture. Scripture is the unnormed norm. However, just by the proliferation of Christian religions, we do know that we need to interpret Scripture. And tradi the tradition of the church and the magisterium of the church assist us in doing that. We teach that sacred Scripture is the inspired word of God. Now, we're not using that word the way an author today might say, I was inspired. Or a businessman might say, I had an inspiration. We are, we are saying something much more forceful when we say that scripture, sacred scripture is inspired. What we're saying is that the human authors of scripture and all the books of scripture were written by human authors. The human authors of scripture 
were free agents, active instruments. Their will was fully engaged. Their intellect was fully engaged. But unlike any other form of writing, God was actively engaged in a unique way. So that, and this is a direct quote from the Catechism, so that they cons- the human authors consigned to writing whatever God wanted written and nothing more. Now let me give you an analogy to help make sense of that. When I celebrate Mass and I say the words of consecration, what I say happens. The the bread that I hold in my hands, the wine in the chalice, becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I am very clearly God's instrument because on my own, as a human being, I do not have the power to make God appear. Only God has that power. But he has given that power to me. Now, if I didn't say the words, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, if I didn't say those words, if I omitted those, the bread and wine wouldn't change. And I am not a robot or an automaton when I say those words. My will is fully active when I say those words. And yet, God is very clearly acting through my words, through my actions. The inspiration of Scripture is is, is somewhat analogous to this. The human authors were truly free agents acting with their own power. But God was acting with them perfectly united with them, with no opposition between them, so that they, can, they expressed what God wanted expressed exactly as he expressed it. No more, no less. This is really very, very important because this is one of the teachings of the church that in my judgment has been greatly undermined in the last hundred years. We talk about, perhaps you've heard, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 as a miracle of generosity. If you haven't, thanks be to God. But I have heard this preached numerous times by numerous priests. This is not at all accurate to how the church understands scripture. Not at all. There is nothing in that pass- those passages from all the synoptic gospels that indicates that anyone was sharing what they themselves had except the little boy who brought the five loaves and two fish. It is crystal clear that the human authors of the gospels intended to communicate that Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish. And we as Catholics, therefore, accept what the human authors intended to express as what God intended to express. The human author's will with respect to scripture and 
and God's will were perfectly unified. Now, that's not to say that the, hu the human authors who wrote the books of Scripture were perfect. They weren't. They pro all of them sinned in other ways. But um, in these words, just like I sin in lots and lots of ways, but my will and God's will are perfectly united when I consecrate the Eucharist. The inspiration of Scripture is, an, is a unique event in human history. Part of what this means, additionally, is that Scripture is without error. Scripture is without error. Now, you might be thinking, are you a fundamentalist, Father? Do you think that the earth is 6,200 years old? No, I don't. The reason that I don't is that while I do believe that sacred scripture is without error, and I mean that in a robust way, truly without error, the human authors wrote in a whole variety of genres. And we need to take into account the meaning that they intended to express, not merely the words they put on the page. So take the classic example on this question is the book of Genesis in the seven days of creation. Did God create in seven days literally? Well, that would be difficult because there was no sun or moon until the third day. So what was a day? And this understanding is at least 1,600 years old because St. Augustine writes about it that the seven days are not literal 24-hour days. So we can go back, all the way back in the tradition of the church to the very earliest times. And we can go back even further, actually, to the writings of the ancient Jewish rabbis who lived a thousand years before Christ and look at their understanding. One of the questions that I was given last week is, if Adam and Eve are the first parents of the whole human race, wasn't there incest? And isn't that a problem? The answer is yes, there was incest, and no, it wasn't a problem. Let me explain. The ancient Israelite rabbis taught that, that Adam and Eve had many, many children. Actually, they say 25 pairs of twins. Now, I don't know if that's actually true. <laughs> that's not in Scripture. But it does seem quite likely that they had more than two children. In fact, the, the book of Genesis does talk about additional children, Seth at least. And it seems quite likely that they had daughters. Now, why wasn't it incest for Adam and Eve's sons to marry Adam and Eve's daughters? Basically because there were no other women. There was no one else to marry. And there were no dangers at that point of the genetic problems that we have with interbreeding now, with incest now, because the effects of the fall were so new. 
basically. So did, was there incest? Yes. Was it beyond the first generation? No. The Israelite rabbis say no. And that's back 1,500 years. I'm sorry, 1,500 years before Christ. I'm just going over the questions to make sure I'm hitting all the ones I wanted to. As long as I'm talking about Adam and Eve, I might as well hit this one too. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? I don't know. We don't need to know. We know that God created them directly. The church has always taught that. Constantly and universally. Anytime that the church, and, and maybe I'll give a one-off talk about evolution sometime, but anytime the church has said anything even remotely close to giving any kind of approval about evolution, the church has always maintained that Adam and Eve were directly created by God. They're an exception, even if some kind of macroevolution is real. So could God have created them with the scar tissue that is usually an indication of an umbilical cord? Sure he could have. Did he? I don't know. And frankly, it's not that important. But what we do know is that they were directly created by God. Now, given all that I've said about Scripture and tradition together, I hope I've made it clear, without putting it in these words, that we as Catholics are not a religion of the book. We are not a religion of the book. We are a religion of the word. And scripture and tradition both express the word, Jesus Christ. So how do we interpret scripture? We have to seek to understand the human author's intention. Because it is the human author's intention that is inerrant. Right? The human author's will and God's will are perfectly united in the inspiration of Scripture. So the human author's intention, what the human author was trying to get at, is what is protected from error. So how do we do that? There are basically three ways, three tools that we can use. The first is that we look at the unity of Scripture. We go back to what I started with tonight. The unity of the historical tradition of our faith. The unity of, the of God's self-revelation in the world. God, we could not simultaneously say that God is good and God is evil. Right? Those two things are opposed directly. They can't both be true. So it cannot be the case that Scripture says one thing over here and the exact opposite over here. Now, there are times where it appears that that kind of thing happens. I'll admit that. But it is an appearance only. If you look more carefully at the author's intention, that conflict is resolved. The second, second tool to understanding Scripture rightly is to read Scripture within the living tradition of the church. What have the bishops said about these passages? What have the great saints of the church said about these passage, passages?
And then the third is to be attentive to the analogy of faith. Now, I've preached about this before a few times, but the analogy of the faith is that every passage of Scripture, ultimately, every passage points to the reality that God is our creator, that we are fallen, and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has redeemed us. Every passage in Scripture ultimately points to that fundamental reality. That is the analogy of faith. If we read a passage and understand it in a way that conflicts with that, then we're reading it incorrectly. We know that definitively. This too I've preached about before, and that is the senses of Scripture. I've already alluded to it tonight, but the foundational sense of Scripture is the foundational sense of any writing, the literal sense. What do the words mean? What did the human author intend to say? St. Thomas Aquinas, though, says that that's only the beginning. It's only the beginning because God, unlike human authors, can signify truth not only with words, but with events themselves. And so this is why we see what's called typology. Types or symbols or images in the Old Testament that point to the reality of God that is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. So for example, Isaac being led to slaughter by Abraham willingly and if you're not sure whether or not Isaac was a willing participant, remember that Abraham was over 80 years old when he had Isaac. And Isaac was a healthy young man. Isaac was a willing participant. Anyway, Isaac was willingly being led to sacrifice. That was a literal event that happened in history. The human author at that time knew nothing of Jesus Christ. Except insofar as Jesus is the word. But he didn't know about the man, Jesus Christ, who would walk on earth nearly 2,000 years later. And yet, God did. And so when God gave, in, when God inspired the human author so that the human author's will expressed what God wanted to convey, that story, that narrative is written with such precision that we can see in numerous aspects of it. Like when Abraham says to Isaac, who's just asked him, who will provide this, or what, who will provide the ram, the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham, not knowing anything of Jesus Christ, except insofar as he is the word, Abraham responds, God himself will provide the lamb. And we can rightly read that passage as directly pointing to Jesus Christ, even though the human author who wrote that passage did not know the man Jesus Christ or the crucifixion that was to happen. Because God can signify with events themselves. And we see this happening again and again throughout the scriptures. What I'm pointing to is the spiritual senses of scripture. 
We've got the literal sense as the foundation and the spiritual senses, meaning the senses that God intended to convey, even though they go far beyond what the human author possibly could have known. And there are three spiritual senses. The allegorical. The allegorical, which is directly related to the analogy of faith. The allegorical, always pointing to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, to our sinfulness and God's mercy. The moral, which teaches us how we ought to act. And the anagogical, which teaches what will come at the end of time. I got a number of people who asked me, please explain purgatory. I'm not going to do that tonight, but I will be sure to explain purgatory at some point in these classes. The anagogical sense always points forward to, to eternal life, to the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Now, one last, last, one last point, and I'm really pleased with myself. We've got three minutes left. How did we come up with the canon of Scripture? The canon meaning list. Canonized saints simply mean that they are added to the list of saints. Canonization is just adding to a list. The canon of Scripture, the code of canon law, is just a list of laws. The canon of Scripture is the list of books of the Bible. How did we come up with the list of books of the Bible? Well, that list was finalized definitively, magisterially, by a, a council of the church at the Council of Trent, where we got the full list of 73 books. But way before that, at numerous local councils, local gatherings of bishops, which do have authority, just not the universal, definitive, absolute authority of the, a full um, ecumenical council of the church, We had that list by the 5th century of definitive books that were included in this canon. Much of that list, the, old, the list of Old Testament books, was present at the time of Christ. Part of the evidence that we have for this is the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contain the books that were disputed. There are scrolls that contain many of the books that are disputed by Protestants as not actually belonging to the Old Testament canon. Well, they were around at the time of Christ. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls to prove it. And they were treated by, by those who likely were followed, or the, by the group of whom John the Baptist and Jesus Christ likely were associated. Ultimately, though, I want to be clear that the list was not definitively settled for at least a hundred years after Christ. It wasn't firmly established for at least that long. Why is that important? It's important, again, because we're not a people of the book. We're a people of the word. And the word is contained in scripture and tradition. And scripture is a subcategory of tradition. The church... The bishops, the successors of the apostles, are the ones who delivered to us the contents of sacred scripture. At the time 
of the apostles, there were lots of heretical books that claimed to be about Jesus Christ. They're, called, they're often referred to as the Gnostic Gospels, meaning that they were seeking a hidden knowledge. Gnosis is, means knowledge. And it was the church that sorted out, the bishops who sorted out which books belonged to the church and which didn't, which actually authentically pointed to Christ, which were authentically inspired by God, and which weren't. And the reason that we can trust this process comes from Jesus' own words, that he has given us another advocate, a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who protects us and who guides the magisterium, the bishops of the church in union with the Pope, in, in continually pointing us to Christ. One more question I wanted to be sure to cover. When you refer to the church, exactly who or what does that mean, the church teaches? Please explain papal infallibility, dogma, what happens when church teachings change over, year, over the years. For example, suicide no longer being a sin, complete reversal on capital punishment. When is man making the rules and when is God? I hope I've given you already in what we've talked about tonight the beginnings or the foundation for answering this question. The church is the constant and universal teaching of the bishops in union with the Pope. When, the, when I say that the church teaches, I'm talking about all of this. Scripture, tradition, the magisterium setting out the limits. That's what I mean when I say the church teaches. So I don't necessarily need to be pointing to one individual person who's teaching it. I'm not necessarily referring to the Pope or Archbishop Lestecki or any particular pope. I'm referring to the constant and universal teaching. What, what the church has always held to be true. The Immaculate Conception is a really useful example of this. The Immaculate Conception, which by the way does not refer to Jesus' conception, but Mary's conception in the womb of Anne. The Immaculate Conception was not defined as a dogma until 1958. Prior to that, the magisterium, the Pope in union with the bishops, had not definitively taught on the subject. Does that mean that prior to 1958, the church didn't believe that Mary was immaculately conceived? No. Prior to 1958, the church did believe that. The vast majority of the fathers of the church, of the bishops of the church, of, of the saints of the church believed that Mary was immaculately conceived. So even before 1958, one could say that Mary was immaculately conceived and could say that the church teaches Mary was immaculately conceived. It would have perhaps slightly less certitude than since 1958. But it still remained, remained true that the church taught this. 
Would you like me to hit on the two examples that were raised? Suicide no longer being considered a sin and the reversal on capital punishment? So on suicide no longer being considered a sin, that's just a misconception. The church still teaches that suicide is a mortal sin. What, where that misconception comes from, though, is that, and this is actually another question, what does the church think about psychology? The church grows in her understanding of the world just as the rest of the world does. The church even grows in her understanding of public revelation. This is how we get new dogmas. It's not that God has revealed something new. It's that we understand better what God has already revealed. The church now better understands mental illness and is aware that she does, the church does not say always, but the church acknowledges that for some, when they, when they take their own life, their will is so profoundly impeded by mental illness that that act cannot be considered a free act. And so while objectively speaking, and we'll get to this later, later on during the year, while objectively speaking we can say suicide is objectively a mortal sin, we can also say in the same breath, but those who commit it might not be free when they commit it. And so we don't know whether or not they have personally, freely, fully chosen a mortal sin and therefore are guilty of that mortal sin. Sin is always in the will. So if a person is not free, they haven't committed a sin. Or at least not as grave a sin. Now on, this actually touches on a couple of uh, two questions. It's the second half of this one. And it also touches on, is there any method via canon law that allows for changes to the catechism of the pa Catholic Church? Papal decree or church conclave. For example, the death penalty. This book, by itself, is not an authority. This book is a collection of authoritative writings. But the book itself is not authoritative. The authority of the things contained in this book is actually from the sources where they are drawn. That's why there are so many citations in this book to the Second Vatican Council, to Thomas Aquinas, to the First Vatican Council, to sacred scripture. This book has very little authority on its own. The authority that it does have is it is a reliable source for authority, authoritative teachings of the church. So on capital punishment, I'm going to make a nuanced distinction here. The church has not actually changed her teaching. Pope Francis did not actually change the teaching of the church on capital punishment. The church has, in the past, taught that capital punishment is not intrinsically evil, meaning there are no circumstances ever when it could ever be committed and not be sinful. The church has taught that that is not the case. It is not intrinsically evil. Some things that are intrinsically evil, always evil, no matter what circumstances, 
murder, abortion. Those things are intrinsically evil. Evil by their own nature. No circumstances can change them. The church has taught that capital punishment does not fall into that category. John Paul II, I don't... I don't have all the years straight. But John Paul II made two revisions to the catechism after it was published in 1993, or two, 1992, on this specific question. John Paul II made very clear as he made those changes. So to answer the question about how can the catechism change, the catechism can change when the Pope says the catechism changes. That is a legitimate way for the catechism to change. But again... The authority within the catechism is actually the source that the catechism is drawing from, not the catechism itself. John Paul II, those two changes that he made, made clear that he was teaching his prudential judgment that we should not use capital punishment. He made very clear that it is not intrinsically evil, but that we ought not use it. Francis, perhaps rightly, in, made the judgment that John Paul II's prudential judgment was not being adequately followed. And so intensified the way he expressed the same prudential judgment. Now, how do I know that he's not directly changing the teaching of the church? Well, two reasons. One, we can't. No one can change public revelation. How could we? Public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. So it's closed. And what the church, what the magisterium has definitively taught as the boundaries for that can't be changed. So I know that he can't change what the church definitively teaches. But I also look at the language he uses. Inadmissible is the language that he uses, and this is not a revised since that change, so I, I can't read it to you from here. But inadmissible is not language that is used in moral theology to express intrinsically evil. It's not a precise term like that. It is a forceful way of saying we should never do it. This is a really useful example. I'm glad whoever wrote that question down, I'm glad you did. Because there are numerous times when it appears that the church has changed her teaching. The church cannot change what she teaches. And so when it appears that there is a change like this, one must go deeper. One must seek a more nuanced, more precise understanding like the one I'm offering by pointing out the word inadmissible. I think that's what I wanted to make sure I covered tonight. I hope that you have a clear sense now, or at least maybe a little bit clearer now than you did before, of what scripture is, of what we mean when, I, when we say, the church teaches X. I hope, I hope this has been helpful. Does anyone have questions? Carrie, would you pass those around if anybody wants to write them down? Why did the Protestant Christians hurt books of the Catholic text? 
Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, what's being referred to is the, why did, why did the Protestants reject certain books that Catholics kept? There's the cynical answer that might be historically accurate and the less cynical answer that also might be historically accurate. The less cynical answer is that there is some historical reason for this, and that is the Septuagint, which was the, the most commonly used translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, did not contain the books that they rejected. However, there were all kinds of other manuscripts, original sources that did. Now, at the time that the Protestants rejected those books, the Dead Sea Scrolls had not been found. The, the oldest archaeological copies of the books that were rejected, what Protestants call the Apocrypha, were significantly newer than, than the birth of Christ or the death of Christ, the life of Christ. And so they, so the Protestants, some Protestants made a case that the, um, that those books ought not be treated as part of the Old Testament canon because Jesus didn't have them. Well, that theory has been pretty much disproven by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls because the Dead Sea Scrolls are contemporary with Christ and they contain the books that the Protestants rejected. The more cynical approach to that question is that the Protestants, Martin Luther particularly, rejected some of the teachings of the church that are founded upon those passages, particularly in 2 Maccabees, the prayer for the dead. Protestants, some, Martin Luther was very uncomfortable with the, with the doctrine of purgatory. And because of that, he rejected Maccabees, which, in, in which the Israelites, the, the, um, the Maccabeans, um, fought on behalf of the people of Israel and a number of their company died in battle. And they wondered, why did they die? Don't we have God on our side? Because they were directed through prophecy to go and fight to defend the Israelites, the rights of the Israelites. Well, they went and looked at the corpses of all their fallen brethren and discovered that all of the, all of the Maccabeans who had died had placed pagan um, totems, not totems, idols, thank you, pagan idols within their armor. Now, this is the fault of the Israelites again and again and again and again. They go back from the one true God to false gods, to pagan gods. 
And so the Maccabeans who had survived the battle recognized that these Maccabeans, who by all appearances were trying to do the right thing, they were fighting for Israel against an unjust oppressor. And so they were deeply sorrowed that their, their fellow Maccabeans had died. And so they offered sacrifice for those who had died. They prayed for them. If there is no purgatory, praying for the dead is meaningless. Because without purgatory, you either go straight to heaven or straight to hell. And once you're in either, there's no coming back. That was just the gospel this past Sunday. There's a chasm fixed between us so that no one can come from your side to mine or your, my side to yours. So, I'm not Martin Luther. I don't know exactly why, but those are, those are uh, the most common theories I've seen. Any other questions? Yes. There are parts that apparently contradict each other. And for much of the history of the church, um, a a regular practice of theologians has been to reconcile those apparent conflicts. And there are, there are competing theories as to how some of those conflicts are reconciled. Um, but it is clear that the tradition of the church holds that those conflicts need to be reconciled. What the human authors intended is without error. Does that answer your question? Um, no, I can I can give I, I can give one. Um, I think a useful example is the Our Father. Matthew and Luke both purport to be giving us the actual words of Jesus. They, there's no textual clues that should lead us to believe this is just a paraphrase. No, Jesus sits down and, and begins to teach the apostles to pray. And yet we have two different versions of the Our Father. How do we explain this? The most satisfying answer that I've come across that um, is endorsed by Thomas Aquinas, and I think it finds its origin in St. John Chrysostom, is that, as with the creeds that I mentioned last time and that we'll talk about in future times, there are multiple versions of many prayers. I don't know if any of you speak Spanish, but the Our Father in Spanish has lots of different variations, slight variations. It's basically the same, but there are lots of slight variations. Why should we assume that Jesus only taught the Our Father once. If he's offering it as the model for all prayer, I think it'd be quite reasonable if he taught it 
numerous times, probably even more than twice. Does that make sense? Does that offer a help? Is that a helpful example? Um, I'm not aware of it directly in Scripture. Not, not obviously. However, we do see him praying in different ways. Um, right, we see him going up into the hills to pray. We see him walking across the, the, the Sea of Galilee when he sent the apostles across and he himself went to go pray. We see him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see him praying out loud before he raises Lazarus from the dead. I thank you, Father, for having heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I thank you, I say it for all them, for all them to hear. So, do we see him literally talking about Lexio Divina? No. But do we see him modeling different kinds of prayer? Yeah, definitely. Any other questions? Hmm. That's possible. Um, to my knowledge, he almost exclusively spoke in Aramaic, um, but he's God. <laughs> Could he have known Latin? For sure. Um, and did he know some Greek? Quite possibly. Do we know? I don't think so. Uh, yeah, Greek was the lingua franca of the, the common language of the time. And so it, it is possible. Uh, I don't know, though. Mm -hmm. it, it could, yeah. All right. Can we pray together? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.